Hey bosses, this week's episode is brought to you by Global Pass, the global co-working membership that gives you access to working spaces in more than 600 cities around the world. We'll tell you more about them during the break. Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey bosses, and welcome to episode 242 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm really excited to have on two really cool guests uh, this week. We have Christy and Bryce from Millennial Revolution and the authors of Quit Like a Millionaire. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us, Johnny. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be fun uh, because we just got done with the Nomad Summit and I realized that this is the first year the two communities have really mixed together, the digital nomad community and the FIRE movement, the financial independence retire early community. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot of fun. I think we the the fire people um, generally aren't aware of the how the, how the digital nomad stuff uh, works. Most of them just retire and then they kind of you know retire in the place where they were working. Uh, we're one of the few people that actually ended up like uprooting our lives and traveling around the world in in uh, with like two backpacks. And then that's when we ran into you people uh, in in Thailand, and we we're just kind of like, "Whoa, what's what are all these people doing here?" Like they're they're also like kind of like doing this stuff at the same time. So yeah, that was really cool seeing how these two communities kind of intersected at that conference in uh, Chiang Mai. Yeah, and it's funny because the two communities actually have a lot in common, and I think they would benefit from each other. I think the the digital nomad community is focused just on traveling and making money, and they don't really think about retirement ever. You know, they're not saving money for anything. And then the fire community is just thinking about how to save costs, usually while living in their home country, and then putting off traveling, you know, or, you know, and, and not taking advantage of things like location arbitrage, low cost of living overseas, or even tax breaks. So I, th- I think the two communities really need to meet each other. Yeah, yeah, because generally you guys are, and I noticed this at the uh, at the conference, you guys are really hyper-focused and obsessed with how to make money online, but a lot of people didn't really seem to have a great strategy for, like, what to do with that money when, after they made it. So, like, and the word retirement does put people off because it's just kind of like, well, why do I need to retire? I'm already traveling the world and kind of stuff. But it, it's, it's more about how to turn your money into a passive income stream. I mean, like, so, like a passive income stream means you don't need to work and it just keeps rolling in, Right. And when you're doing the digital nomad stuff, you're really focused on an active income stream. But if you can turn it into a passive income stream, it does two things. One, it makes your it makes your uh, digital nomad hustle easier and easier and easier because all of a sudden, like as you grow that passive income stream, it starts to take off. It starts to like uh, cover more and more your living expenses. Like just like you know, ten thousand steady income a year. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Then it grows to like twenty, then thirty, then forty, and then all of a sudden, you just, like all of the money that you make ends up being like 100% saved. So it just, it, it ramps your income like crazy and it also takes all the stress away, right? So, I mean like, so the two kind of like bodies of knowledge, they, they gel really, really well together if you put them together. And I'm really excited because this is the first time we've ever actually tend to try to do that. Yeah, and I think this is kind of the next step. And this is why I wanted to have you guys on the podcast is because I really feel like both communities would benefit. So mm-hmm. before yeah, we get started, yeah. let's just get a little background on you guys. Christy and Bryce, like, how did you get started with both the fire movement as well as the nomad movement? Yeah, it was kind of like we stumbled into both accidentally. So um, in terms of the fire movement, we weren't originally planning to retire early. Our original plan was you know, to buy the house, work until you're 65, get a pension, the normal status quo um, 
path to life that everybody else was going on. Uh, what actually prevented that from happening was number one, my job was actually quite unstable, despite the fact that we are both in tech. Um, there was the fear of outsourcing at work. Not only that, my um, coworkers, one of them actually collapsed and almost died at his desk from overwork because he was working, you know, 60 to 80 hour weeks for three years. Um, continuously and I was also on medication from anxiety um, and on top of that there was really the housing in the city that we were living in in Toronto at the time was really expensive a single family home was over a million dollars so wow. it was, yeah like all these factors is like am I even going to have a job do I really want to be in that much debt and uh, this just didn't make any sense so instead of actually just going along that path that everybody else went along, we decided to do the exact opposite, which was not buy a house, rent instead, um, invest our money until we grew a, a portfolio of a million dollars. And then we retired in our 30s. And uh, the traveling the world thing was a bonus that we weren't expecting because we thought we were just going to maybe do a victory lap around the world and spend, I was expecting to spend 75000 to to 100000 um, But what we actually ended up spending was $40,000, uh, which is how much passive our income, passive income our portfolio was throwing off of. And then we realized, hey, we could just travel the world forever. And then I discovered the digital nomad community in Chiang Mai, and it just blew my mind. I was like, wait, there's actually already a, a whole group of people that you know really understand this concept of geographic arbitrage. We don't need to explain anything to them, and they're already living this life. Um, and we have a lot of in common in terms of like the flack that we get. Like I was talking to other digital nomads and they're saying, oh, people back home are like, why would you want to go to Thailand? Like everybody wants to live in an expensive city and own a like fancy condo. And I'm like, why would you want to do that? Like they already understand this concept of the status quo, um, buy a house, work until you're 65, get a pension. That's not an option. And it doesn't make sense anymore. So yeah. that was a little synergy. Or at least it's not the best option. I'm, sh I'm sure, you know, some people are are happy doing it but most people that i know at least like they're not really that happy you know either they're just swamped in debt and even if they have a good marriage and a relatively good life and they enjoy living in their home city they can't really enjoy it because they're paying you know a huge rent or a huge mortgage they have all these bills they have very little free time and as you had mentioned a lot of people are, are you know, on, de you know, depression or anti-anxiety med medication just because of the stress of normal life back home. It's, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Like when we go back and, and then because you're going like, hey, what have you been up to like over the year? They just like they just talk about how busy they are and like, oh, I got a new couch and I'll, and, and it's kind of like that's it. And then for, and then they start complaining about work immediately. And then when they go ask what what have we been doing? It's like, oh, yeah, we were all around the world. We were in Poland. Then we go to Portugal. Then we went to Iceland. Then we went to and then they kind of go shut the hell up. Right. <laughs> do you do you do you get that as well? Like when you go home and like your friend tell you what you ask you what you've been up to? I think people call it, I mean, I think there's a term for it. Like it's either, you know, like hate bonding or trauma bonding. <laughs> like it, it's, it's kind of a, a nice feeling for people to get together and complain about their boss, complain about their work, complain about how busy they are uh -huh. over some drinks because it just kind of makes them feel better somehow yeah, about themselves. I guess. But, but it's like, you don't have to, by the way. And like, oh yeah, sure. We do. <laughs> It's, it's, it's like, but the thing is, I'm, I'm showing them how to do it. And they're still not, they're, they're still like, oh, no, I could never do that because of, have you ever noticed that people just keep talking themselves out of like making a change in their life? Like they complain endlessly, but they don't want to actually do anything to fix it. Have you noticed that? Yeah, 100%. And one of my favorite things is reading like the one star reviews of books like yours, because obviously it works. So you've done it. And I've met like, hundreds of other people who have done it. Right. But when you read the, you know, like the, the negative reviews. Like, you know, even though 85% or five stars, like, this is amazing, 
you know, then you have the people that are like, this would never work because X, Y, Z. Right. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of people that like, it scares them, right? This, the, because if you found another path to life and then that actually works, then that means to them, it invalidates their life choices. Um, yeah, we've seen a lot of like comments, uh, when our, when, when our story comes out in the media, there's always like all this hate about like, oh, you can't possibly do this. It's because you don't have responsibilities. It's because, uh, you know, the rest of us actually, we have kids or like, we can't leave the city that we live in and all sorts of reasons why they can't do it rather than, okay, well, maybe I don't do exactly what you're doing, but I can do this part, which will help me have less stress and more money. Like just trying to take the parts that work for them. It's really just like, I need to dismiss your lifestyle and your choices immediately because I don't want it to invalidate mine. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's sad because I think this is how people immediately make themselves feel better about their situation is by saying, you know, well, I can't do it. Well, good for you, but, you know, I'm in a different situation. And what people don't realize is we all have hurdles that we have to get through. And yeah, if we, yeah. yeah, if we just look for them, we, we focus on them. We have different, different hurdles, but also we have life choices. I mean, like, you know, having kids is expensive and it's there's a lot of you know upsides to it but then there's also financial downsides so it's a it's a choice that people make and if they make that choice you know it's 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 you know like i don't want to say they can't use an excuse because i've met a lot of people who are financially independent or travel or digital nomads and in fact a few of the speakers of the nomad summit this year had kids yeah you know, that's what i was gonna say that, that was the most amazing part about seeing the um about the about the summit because in our heads we're all like you know uh, 20 or 30 year old like kids with uh, laptops sitting on a beach but like there we saw like like older people families like couples single people like all sorts of different demographics from all over the place and they were all pulling it off in their own way and that was an amazing experience yeah and it's not that they can do everything exactly the same as you know someone who's single like myself and has you know literally no responsibilities you mm -hmm. know they have to kind of plan ahead maybe they'll stay in places longer you yeah. know, maybe they'll rent a, a house on Airbnb instead of a studio apartment in the city center, but it's everything is possible, and everything was a choice. I mean, and and if anything, sometimes it's more rewarding when it's more difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the uh, and the way that uh, people like every like people were happier. I mean, like they, you know, there's a lot of people that were trying to figure out like how this, all this FBA, there's a lot of newbies, uh, newbies also at the conference that were just kind of like, they, they were coming in and saying like, okay, how does this all work? But the people that actually did it, I mean, like they all seemed like, oh yeah, you know, this isn't, this isn't that, that difficult. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. And, uh, and the thing is, I wish I had known about you guys like years ago, because how the math of financial independence works is as you uh, eloquently explained in your, in your talk, uh, you take how much money you saved and then you multiply it by 4% and that's how much money that you can uh, comfortably, sustainably withdraw from the portfolio every year, right? So what, if I had known about you guys and then realizing how much cheaper it is to live in a place like Southeast Asia or Portugal and use geographic arbitrage to my advantage, I would have been able to leave a lot sooner because I thought that I thought just like everybody else did that if I was going to retire, I had to retire in the city where I was working. But that actually wasn't true at all and I had no idea. So I mean like – yeah, if I had known about you guys a lot, I would have been able to retire. I'd be able to say I retired in my like twenties instead of thirties, right? Wow. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way. But what, like, when you were living in Toronto, I'm sure that you guys figured out ways to lower your rent and lower your expenses. But what was your fine number? What your financial independence number? Like, what did you need to be able to retire living there? Yeah, we thought we would need at least forty thousand um, dollars. So that's why we 
we amassed a million dollar portfolio before we left. Uh, but then just from traveling the world, we realized that, hey, you could live in Thailand, you could live in Southeast Asia for $20,000. And that was not even a possibility when we actually were in Toronto. Um, and a lot of people now, like because of inflation, people have um, worried that they need even more than that. Um, and a lot of people think that because and it's true because their job is fixed to an expensive large city that they're at the mercy of their jobs, right? But when you become locationally independent um, and financially independent, you don't have to live in that big city anymore. And I think that's the key that people are struggling to understand. It's like, I this is where the jobs are. I have to spend, you know, 50 to 100 grand a year and there's no other options because they don't think that they can ever get away from their jobs. But if you actually make yourself um, location independent, that that opens up a whole bunch of doors. Yeah, there's two there's two major um, profound ways that digital nomadism like synergizes with fire. So it's, it, I almost call it like fire 2.0 when you combine them to say the first is what we just touched upon, which is geographic arbitrage. You don't need to retire in the city where you're working. Right. So if you're working, if you're working in New York and you're used to paying 100 grand for everything like that, and then you move to Thailand and you're paying like 20, 30 grand, you don't need to save as much money to, to, uh, in, in your soul sucking corporate job in order to leave. And the second thing is the idea of making money online, the, the idea that you can make, you know, you, like the, the digital nomads are generally trying to replace their entire income. Right. Like they're, or because they're trying to be completely uh, self-sufficient from their from the job. But if you combine that with fire where you kind of have like, for example, uh, it might be hard, not for everybody, but like you, but it might be hard to make like, you know, 50, 60, 100 grand in a digital nomad type job doing FBA or blogging or writing or whatever like that. But could you make 10 grand? Could you make five grand a year? Yeah, probably. Right. And when you do that, it reduces your time to fire even further, because if you, you know, for example, just to make the math easy, $40,000, if that's your entire living expenses, you need a million dollars. But if you move to Thailand and your living expenses drop to $20,000, you only need half a million dollars. Now, if you are able to work and do one of these like digital nomad jobs in which you make just like 10 grand a year, all of a sudden you only need $10,000 from your passive income. So now you need a quarter of a million dollars. So so it, it almost it supercharges fire because it's like just by combining those two things, it drops your time to retirement to a quarter of what it used to what it would have been. So that's like that's the power of digital nomadism plus fire. Definitely. And also an another point on that for people who are thinking, well, quarter million dollars, that's a lot of money. Like I have, you know, $2,000 in the bank. On, during my talk this year, which should be up pretty soon. So if you guys subscribe to the Nomad Summit email list or the channel, you can see my talk on it where I explained as a digital nomad, as, as an entrepreneur, it's really, really easy to take advantage of things like tax breaks, uh, being able to scale an online business or even sell an online yeah. business to be able to reach that number much quicker. Because I, if I continue living in California, there's no way I ever would have saved up a quarter million dollars. It, it just sounded so ridiculous to me. Like I, I probably, I was making 50 grand a year as a working for a big US you know, corporation in California, but my goal was to try to save $200 mm -hmm. a month. And I usually never hit that just because my expenses are so high. Yeah. While living in Chiang Mai, where my living expenses were less than a thousand dollars a month, as I grew, you know, uh, my business and I started making a normal U.S. salary again, I was able to save like seventy-five percent to even ninety percent of my monthly income because I was taking advantage of all the tax breaks. So everything was, uh, you know, there, there was no, you know, forty percent or fifty percent of my income to get taken away by the tax man. My lower, my living expenses were so low. And I was surrounded by so many entrepreneurs who were focused on growing their businesses and making more money that I learned how to grow my income, my salary, 
you know, not by 5% or 10% a year, but you know, to be able to double it every year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really powerful. Even, even I'm still learning about some of those like tax breaks that I got from your, uh, from the conference. But there's this couple that um, they run a blog now called No Man Numbers. And uh, they were in, in a similar situation as yours. Like you don't even have to start your own online business to become a digital nomad, right? These guys were in California and they came to us and they're just kind of like, I'm, I'm making a lot of money. I'm doing this cool software job and I'm making six figures, but it's really expensive in, in, in San Jose or wherever the heck they were. And uh, when we started talking with them a bit more, I re we realized that their job was completely remote. It was a virtual office. This is one of these like startup companies that had no physical location and everybody just use their laptops and they were communicating with like Slack or Skype and like all these kinds of online tools. And then we were just kind of like, well, why are you in California? And then she's like, what? That's from our company. It's like, your company's nowhere, right? You could, you don't even have to ask permission. If you just hop a plane down south to Mexico and then you live in like a place like Oaxaca where it's like the same time zone or like maybe like one time zone off, they'll never know, right? And then she went, huh. And then she actually did that. And then within two years, her savings rate jumped from zero to like, like 80%. And then like, and then within like two or three years, now she's retired, like just a little change like that, by combining the power of digital nomadism, it's like, it's like a superpower. Yeah. And you get to enjoy life now. Because even if yeah. you're still working 40 hours a week, you know, nine to five, or the time zone difference, maybe working, you know, 10 to six or something, you get to enjoy being in a beautiful, you know, city like Oaxaca, in Mexico, where it has amazing food, lots of culture, or yeah. if your job isn't super time zone dependent, you can live in, in Europe, or you can live in Thailand or in Asia and be able to enjoy those things now. Just because, mm -hmm. you know, even being able to go on a hike in the morning, you know, or to a waterfall after work or on the weekend going on a, on a weekend trip, it makes our lives so much better now, like than living in a big city in the US or Canada or somewhere expensive, working all week and then on the weekend just being so tired you know, you know, of life, you know, of, of work and stress that we end up not even doing anything. I, I mean, most of my friends that live in Southern California within, you know, 10 or, you know, 20 miles from the beach only go to the beach once a year just because on weekends they have, you know, they have uh, responsibilities, they have errands to run, they have to clean the house, you know, or they're just stressed and they don't want to sit in traffic and look for parking. Yeah. And the, the improvement to your health that that makes is priceless, really, um, because, you know, they say like time is more important than money, but really health is more important than time, because if you have all the time in the world, but you're actually sick because of all the stress from work and your own medication, you can't actually enjoy life. Um, and like I was on a lot of medication, anxiety meds uh, when I was working. I had coworkers that almost died. I had all these people around me with all these health issues. My boss had a blood clot in his leg. And the doctors are saying that that could travel to his brain and kill him, right? Uh, but now that you know we actually live this life, uh, traveling around Chiang Mai, traveling the world, going to Poland, going to Portugal, um, our health has moved, improved dramatically. Like I used to have to wear this wrist brace all the time because I was in front of the computer so much. I have since lost it um, for the last three years, and I don't know where it is because I don't need it anymore. And then Bryce's doctor, um, he, he recently got a checkup, and his doctor diagnosed him as obnoxiously happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So. Yeah, he was like, it's, it weirds people out. Yeah. Like, be, just being happy and relaxed all the time, it weirds people out. People kind of go, what are you on? What's, what's, what's the deal here, you know? Um, but, like, people, like, in, uh, especially that live in North America, they are always stuck in that mindset of, if I want to travel, if I want to take a vacation, or if I want to relax, or, you know, it, it costs money, right? Recreation, leisure costs money. And it's just, like, this whole digital nomadism thing just completely flips on its head. It's like, no, no, you could 
you could do that like all the time and you could it, it could actually increase how much money you have because you'll be able to save a lot more money so you'll be able to, like i keep telling people when reporters ask me like what you know typical day is like i'll be like i'll be on a beach in thailand and i i don't have to do anything and i'll and because the cost of living there is so low it's actually making it actually costs less than my portfolio is making passively while i'm while, while i'm uh while i'm just like sitting on the beach i'm sitting on the beach and making money while i'm traveling i'm making money on vacation and then they kind of go wait what so it's like it just makes you kind of want to like shake people and kind of go you know all of these problems that you seem to be like consuming your lives they are all made up you don't have to play if you don't want to there's another way of living and but then they kind of go ah not me because of this and this and that and the other you know <laughs> yeah and it, it, that's such a good point that you make and a lot of people don't take they kind of take one step in sometimes and then they're like well i can't afford to pay for my mortgage back home you know or my rent back home and then still be able to, to travel to all these places especially if they're you know on a short trip and they're paying nightly hotel rates versus right. their monthly uh airbnb or uh accommodation rates i mean it's it's insane because if you think about it, just the cost of what we were spending back home for rent or mortgage is usually the entire cost of living in a place like Chiang Mai. Like, can you talk about what you're spending back in Toronto versus what you're spending in Chiang Mai? Oh, yeah. Um, so back when we were in Toronto, we found really cheap rent compared to everybody else. So we were spending $850 a month, uh, but it was like the top of a, a townhouse. Um, and then like, uh, other stuff included, um, taking like the subway cost. So everything added up to be about $40,000 a year. But now, um, that we're living in Chiang Mai, you could easily spend just $2,000 for a really good life. Cause you can rent an apartment for, you know, 500 to $600 with a pool. And then you could go out to eat every day for $2 a meal, um, get massage for $10 an hour. Um, and then we recently showed this lifestyle to uh, Bryce's cousins who were trying to, you know, scope out this nomadic lifestyle because they had gotten really sick of um, paying their one bedroom apartment $2,000 a month rent in Toronto. And what they found out as we showed them is that, hey, your $2,000 rent uh, for a one bedroom condo covers your entire monthly cost of living, including massages. And they were just completely their, their minds were blown because they were like, I didn't think this was possible because you, you don't really know until you actually live it. Um, and then once we showed it to them, they're like, we need to find a way to become location independent. Cause I like, I'm so much happier. I don't have so much stress when we're here and you're, you're living a, a, a quality luxurious lifestyle for, you know, like a 10th of the price back home. Yeah. And, and speaking of, you know, that rent, a lot of like most of the time or almost all the time, the places are fairly furnished. So you don't have to deal with things breaking or you need to replace things. You usually either have a house cleaning service either built in or it's really, really cheap, like, you know, less than $25 for someone to come and clean your place. So you just end up having so much more free time and less responsibilities. Yeah, but that's why we travel the world with two backpacks and it freaks people out because they're like, how is that possible? Like, because they, they think about all the things they own. They think about all the money they have to spend on maintaining all those things, all the headaches they get. Um, you know, from having to replace the furniture, from having to replace the roof when they own a house. And for us, it's like, we don't even have to think about it. We just like last, we just spent three months in Chiang Mai. We didn't have to buy any furniture. Everything came furnished. Uh, the washer is on site. We just do laundry there. And, uh, you really don't need to own a lot of things to be happy. It's, it's the experiences that make you happy. It's, it's the fact that you are still young and can travel and you have health. That's what makes you happy. None of these, you know, I, I don't need to have a BMW. I don't need to have all these fancy gadgets 
like, what's the point, right? You're, you only have one life to live. So you might as well live it to the, to the fullest based on um, experiences rather than owning things. And, and, and the simple act of having everything like in, for us, it's like two backpacks or like, you know, a backpack and a suitcase. It kind of forces you to be a minimalist because it's like you can't buy anything if it's not going to fit into your backpack. Right. So it's like, you know, that um, you, you know, that uh, Marie Kondo show where there's where she kind of goes around and helps people clean all the stuff in their in their in their garage. And they're like, uh-huh. does, it spark, does it spark joy? And then for us, it's like, does it fit in the backpack? Then it's then it's coming with us. If not, it's gone. Right. Yeah. So it's like I don't need any of that Marie Kondo crap. I, I just like <laughs> I all have in his backpack and I'm automatically minimalist. Yeah, and, and I'm the same way. I'm, I'm traveling with just carry-on luggage now for the last year, and it's nice. been the, the best thing that I've ever done. I didn't think that it would make me happier to have less stuff, but it really does, and it's Isn't hard it to explain. Yeah, it is weird. It is weird. First of all, we we never have to worry about like like losing our luggage anymore because we always bring it yeah. on with us. We're like in and out of a plane, like with the first ones in and out, right? And People wor- like the more stuff you have, the more people worry about it. Mm-hmm. Like when I go home to my dad's uh, and my dad's thing, and he's like, "Don't scratch the BMW." He's like, like he's like, he's like constantly worried about it, as if it's like a like a you know another kid or something like that. It's just who has time to like worry about all of the like oh my big screen TV is like has a crack in it and this kind of stuff and like I, who cares right? If our entire like our entire life's possessions. Like if that backpack disappeared, I like I could just you know I'd be annoyed at losing my laptop because that's my most expensive possession. But everything after after that is just like a bunch of t-shirts and like shoe and, and like shirts and this kind of stuff. I could replace it for like nothing like immediately. So it's like you're not worried about it. You don't have to insure it. You don't have to worry about someone stealing it because it's like it's not really. Yeah, you're right. It just it is it's the freedom from all that worry of stuff and it's it is hard to explain, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I remember when I was living in the U.S. I would buy stuff to try to fill voids in my life or make me happy, thinking, you know what? What I really need, I, I like, I really need a, a a set of really nice wine glasses that are different for red and white wine and different champagne <laughs> foods, because if I don't have that, then you know I can't entertain. And I would go out and buy that, and thinking, okay, well now I need you know a, like a wine decanter, and now I need this, and now I need this, now I need this, and it was just a constant flow of just buying crap, either on Amazon or going to the store every weekend, and then I would need a bigger place to store it, and then every year or two when I would have to move, I'd have to rent a giant U-Haul truck, and it would take me like you know a, literally a week to pack, and then to move my stuff, and another week to unpack. Now it takes me maybe 20 minutes to pack everything. And I have a habit now of just leaving things behind that. I'm like, all right, if I didn't use this in the last month, I'm just going to leave this shirt or leave this, you know, random item, you know, either sell it or just give it away. Because if, if something, if it's something I'm not using every month, then why carry it? No, I, I completely hear you. And uh, on that whole note about buying stuff, I used to have a really bad purse addiction <laughs> uh, because like, like I was actually born in China. So um, having grown up poor, I thought that at that point, once I started making money, that that was a symbol of status. And since other people were buying purses, that's like part of your self-worth, right? So I kept buying name brand purses um, and it got so bad to the point where I kept accumulating stuff in our apartment. And at one point I considered um, buying, like either buying a house or renting a bigger apartment just to store all my crap. And I refused to throw anything out. Um, and then it was Bryce that kind of like, he didn't really say anything to his credit. He just kind of said, okay, let's go look at apartments. Let's go apartment hunting. And then my, because like my brain is really math oriented, I started doing the calculations for the rent and I was like, 
wait a minute, like all the money that I would be saving by not throwing all the stuff out, I'm just going to end up spending it all in rent because the rent would have doubled. And then I was like, oh, wow, I would have just been able to make up all the stuff that I'm going to get rid of uh, by having like just one month of rent will cover all those expenses. So it doesn't make sense for me to keep it. Uh, let's just get rid of all that and then keep the low rent. So yeah, like it, it really is kind of a, like a process to go like I used to be a, because of that, I used to be a hoarder, I wouldn't throw anything out. And now we live out of two backpacks. And that was a whole process through nine years to go from, you know, from a hoarder to minimalist. But yeah, I, I hear you like it's, it's really easy to get into that mindset of buying stuff because you see other people around you, they're doing it, you're kind of having a pissing contest with them to see who has nicer stuff. Um, but then over time, as you the more minimalist you become, the happier you become because you don't have to worry about the stress of maintaining all those things and having a bigger place that you have to pay all this rent or mortgage to store it all. At what point did you realize that you wanted to like, even, even with the, the stuff that you had that you wanted to get it down to one carry on? Like what motivated that decision? It, it took a long time to be honest. I, uh, I first left the US in 2008 and I carried the maximum amount of luggage that the air, airline would allow, which is two giant suitcases. Wow. And it was so big that it couldn't fit in the trunk of the taxi in Bangkok. <laughs> so my cousin actually went with me on that first trip to Thailand and we had to get two separate taxis just because we both had so much stuff. Wow. And this wasn't even me moving to Thailand. It was me going on a three-week trial trip to see if I liked it. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And he was just on vacation. And it was just so normal for us to be like, okay, well, what's the maximum that you know, a U.S. airline would allow you to bring? And turns out that for whatever reason, when you're flying to and from the U.S., you're allowed to carry way more than if you're flying from anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It's, it's really true that your stuff, your possessions just grow to fit the space. Like if you have a bigger space, bigger house, you just buy things to fill it. And if you have a bigger luggage, you just think, oh, I, I have all this extra space. Why not get extra stuff to take with me? Yeah, it, it, it really is kind of like this learning over time that when you like constraints actually help you and make you more creative. So the, the fact that we had the constraints of carry on luggage actually made it so that it's like, OK, decide what your priorities are, like what you actually want. Yeah, my, my parents are the exact same way. Like we're going around for an entire year in a backpack and they're going and, and they went to like Orlando for like a week and they had like, you know, two giant luggages and they're like, oh, I can't possibly, you know, uh, cut any of this stuff out. Right. And I look inside their, <laughs> their, their suit. I look inside their suitcase as they're going and there's like there's like a two pound bag of peanuts in there. And I was like, what? <laughs> there are peanuts there, you know. And they're like, well, what if I get hungry on the flight? And I was like, but it's going to be in the cargo hold. And I was like, it's just like, you know what? All right, dude, whatever. It's 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 fine. You do you. Do you. <laughs> so it's funny. My sister tried this kind of nomadic lifestyle for a while. And she actually moved to South America. And then she tried moving to Bali. And but she was kind of half in half, you know, half out where she still took the same habits that she had when she lived back in the US. Uh -huh. And the the a good example of it is when we met up in Bali, I had been traveling with just carrying on luggage. So it was, you know, really easy for me to move hotels. She had between her, her husband and her two young kids who were, I think, like five and eight at the time, they had, I think, uh -huh. like seven or eight giant suitcases, just whatever the maximum amount was. And I, th I don't think she realized at the time, and I, I think, you know, this is a good example for everyone is we don't realize that having more conveniences or having more stuff is actually it actually has more downsides than we think about. So the the first downside that was really obvious to me was their their hotel room 
like were so full of luggage that they couldn't even walk around it. So they had, they had physically less space, <laughs> and it was and they couldn't get the smallest hotel rooms. They, said they had to get like a bigger room just because they knew they would have so much stuff. Oh, so even then, it was just like uncomfortably cramped. But then when it came time to move hotels because we wanted to check out a, a different uh, part of Bali. They just could not physically carry all the the luggage. They had to make so many trips, and my sister was like, "Oh, can you can you can you help?" And I said to her, "Of course I'll help because I'm your brother and I love you. But just to let you know, there should be no reason why you need help to move your your own luggage. Yeah. There, there's four of <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. and there's no reason why you need seven bags and two separate taxis just to carry this. Just like because especially they were just there on a two week trip." Uh-huh. And I, those, I, yeah, yeah, that style of travel is actually the kind of people. I don't know, like uh, I'd be curious as to what your sister thought of the experience. But like sometimes we try to like get people to come along with us and do this nomadic stuff, and not and and like we we always have we, we always have a great time because we're used to it. But like they're not used if they travel with that like with that amount of stuff, traveling does become a chore. And then at the end of it, they're like, uh, this wasn't fun. I don't know if I'd want to do this like long term because i'm you know it's like i I, you know that airline lost this luggage and then that hotel lost this other thing and it's just like yeah if you travel like heavy like that then traveling is not nearly as fun as like the way that you and i do it right did did she did you enjoy did she enjoy that experience no she hated it she thought it was the most stressful (laughs) thing ever and that's why they ended up buying a house now back in near san francisco Oh geez, you know what? It's really, really important to get the luggage right. Like it's, it's actually not. It's one of these. Like we've been so used to traveling this entire time that it's just second nature for us. That whenever and whenever we go to one of like the fire conferences, they're like, "Show us your backpack. Show us your backpack." And Chris, she's like, "I'm like, why? why? Right? It's not that surprising." And they and we bring out the backpack. So we're like, "Okay, fine." And we have to pack it all up, and we have to we have, we bring it on stage, and we open the backpack, and everyone goes, "Whoa, that's all the what? stuff you, you have." Have a week of clothes? That's and it, crazy. And we're like, "What?" You just wash it. It's like it's it's so like second nature for us, but it's like magical to like North Americans to be like, wow, I could never do that. You know, it's like uh, I'm pretty sure you can. You just don't want to. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Where a lot of things, I mean, whether it's you know the the fire movement or the nomad movement or traveling carry on only and minimalism, these are all things that seem impossible until you've either seen someone else do it or you really just try doing it for for a while, and then you realize. Wow, this action wasn't as hard or impossible as we thought. But second, there's so many more side benefits that we never even thought of. Yeah, it's really the I mean, like the the, the really cool stuff about uh, traveling is meeting people like you, meeting people like because because you end up like um, taking ideas from other uh, communities. Like I would have never, ever, ever sitting back home in Toronto or New York or L.A. like met you. Right. There's like no way that our paths would have ever have crossed. And we learned so much from like watching other travelers. There's like another community that we like crashed into, which is like the um, the world schoolers. There are these there are these like traveling families that figured out a way to like educate their kids on the road. And we we were just kind of like, wait, 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 how does that work? And I, again, I would have never met that community either. So just kind of like trying to like uh, to take lessons from all these different communities that never really ever talked to each other. Like that's where the superpower came from. And and the, this the 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 backpacks. I mean the see like we end up like seeing what kind of backpacks that the other digital nomads and the travelers bought and they just bought that because we have like osprey 40 liter uh backpacks which is apparently like really popular yeah. among all the digital nomads. and it's approved by our friend who's a flight attendant so you know that 
uh, you know that it's approved for carry-on for sure. Yeah, because it's the maximum amount of space that you can put into like a Ryanair carry-on, right? So it's like, it, it's just like, I, I would have never, ever, ever like figured that stuff out if I hadn't started traveling. Because you just end up, like, if you, when you stay back in one place, you just think that's the echo chamber and everyone just does what everyone else like everyone just does what everyone else does, and then as a result, you just have like you don't have new ideas. No one has no any new no new ideas, no new creativity because you never meet any new people. Yeah, I, I love that, and I think even within each community, it becomes a little bit of a its own echo chamber. Where, like for example, the you know the nomad movement, now everyone just wants to travel and and then build businesses, and nobody's. Nobody like was talking about retirement or saving money, and that's why right. I was like, I need to have this be the, the the topic for Nomad Summit this year, at least in my talk, because this is something that I think will not only change people's lives now, but really make it a sustainable lifestyle choice for you know w when they get older or for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I thought, oh, yeah, we were in the audience. We thought you did a great job. That was uh, that was a really well done summary of the the, the ideas of fire, and I could see. People kind of going, wait, what? Like, what's like, what is this? Like, they they had never heard of any of this stuff before. They they could talk about FBA stuff all day long, but they're just kind of like, wait, you don't just like spend it all. And it it's really fascinating that like even in you you think that all of our communities are very let's say counterculture, right? Because we all you know did did the opposite of what everyone else did, but we all still have those kinds of biases like in in part of our lives that still need to be broken out of because even in the fire community and they're all people that you know retired in their 30s or 40s and then they all had to face the same kind of like backlash from their parents like retiring in your 40s well that's stupid right but then i tell them what we're doing and like we're traveling around the world with two backpacks and they're like well that's stupid right so they're just, I'm just so yeah. there's still those like there's those echo chambers there's still those biases that are still built into our psyche even though we think we're all like yeah i'm gonna do my own thing but we're still there's always stuff to learn there's always stuff to learn because you know you don't know what you don't know until you go out and you find people right definitely agree Hey guys, real quick, I wanted to tell you about this week's episode sponsor, Global Pass, the global co-working membership. So Global Pass was actually created by my friends at coworker.com and it gives you frictionless access to more than 1,500 co-working spaces worldwide. Virtually anywhere you go, you have access to workspace through their app. You can participate in their private founder launch for just 50 bucks and get exclusive benefits for the first 500 users to join. Find out more at coworker.com slash pass. So what are what do you think are some things that the fire community can learn from the digital nomad community? I, I would definitely say location slash geographic arbitrage. Um, so from the the fire community, a lot of the times people are thinking so hard about saving money. Like, how do I cut back on my expenses? It, this is an expensive city, but I can still find a way to cut back. Um, and then they don't realize that if you use location independence properly, you don't have to cut back. Like what we're doing now, we're living a luxurious life in Thailand, um, getting massages, getting a place with a pool and sauna for a fraction of how much you would spend back home. And you don't need to cut back. Um, another thing that they don't realize is how much taxes they can save. Like you said, like using flag theory, being able to um, figure out, it's like playing life like a chess game, like being able to figure out how, how to optimize your taxes. They're thinking about in terms of like, how do you optimize taxes in terms of um, your investments are taxed more efficiently than earned income, but they're not actually thinking about how do you actually just go to a place with territorial taxation system and not pay taxes at all on your income. Yeah, that's pretty mind blowing that, right? for us. That was so, the first time we heard of it. Yeah, so that's something that could get them to financial independence faster. And then it gives them a lot of uh, options after retirement of where they want to live in order to minimize the taxes they make 
after retirement on passion income. So, and, and also just finding your passion, like a lot of things that people are doing in the um, traveling community. I've noticed people uh, working online, working freelance, doing things that they really love to do. And um, in the fire community, a lot of the times people end up doing something just for the high income without thinking about what they're going to do after fire um, in terms of like your life plans, in terms of like passion projects. So that's another thing, side hustles that um, the traveling community, um, people who build business online can definitely teach the fire community. And it's not just the aspirational stuff about like what to do after retirement. Like there's like digital nomadism accidentally solves a lot of struggles that the fire community has like on a tactical level. So one example of this is inflation. So um, the the whole like 4% rule, there's this risk that like you have to keep adjusting for inflation and in that uh, every year because that makes because as you know inflation erodes the value the purchasing value of a dollar uh, you have to spend more and more and more to get the same purchasing power and so there's all this like uh, research and financial research that, that goes into like what do you do about that but traveling actually kind of completely sidesteps that because inflation is a per country um, metric, right? Like when they say, oh, it's a two, it's a two or three percent inflation rate, and the, they're talking about the U.S. inflation rate. If you go and live in another country like Japan, that's deflationary, for example, you actually completely that you completely sidestep that because yeah, your money's appreciating in U.S. dollars, but you, if you're living in a deflationary country or in a country in which inflation doesn't really rear its head, like in Thailand, for example, you just don't have to worry about that. Americans, also another thing, health insurance. Americans. Every time I go to a reporter and then and then they go, well, I'm going to retire. And they, the first question they ask is, what do you do about health insurance? Because health insurance in the U.S. is ridiculously expensive. But when you go traveling and then you rely and, and then you all of a sudden it opens up your world in terms of being able to rely on travel or expat insurance, where I was telling people like the kind of bills that we pay. I mean, like we we bought a world expat insurance policy and it was like 200 bucks a month for the two of us kind of thing. Right. And then in, when you're in the U.S., it's like easily like, you know thousands and thousands of dollars a month uh, from there. So it, so it accidentally solves that problem too. Uh, another thing that it solves is something called sequence of return risk. So this is a little wonky, but it base, it's a little data wonky, but it's basically the idea of what happens if you retire and then you immediately go into a financial crisis, right? Like, like mm -hmm. the stock market like drops, falls off of a cliff, you could fail because if you just retire, all of a sudden you're forced to, you're forced to sell your assets at a loss and that screws everything up. But they, but they don't realize uh, that if you can live anywhere uh, simply by getting on a plane and then coming to Thailand or Southeast Asia or even like places like Poland, Estonia, like places like that, you could drop your living expenses by like half and you won't, you'd, and then just live off the dividend rather than selling anything. So, um, so, and as long as you don't sell anything at a loss, the stock market always eventually recovers. So it solves that problem as well. That's called sequence of return risk. And that's a really, really difficult problem that the fire community struggles with. And it just, it just, it just disappears when you when you when you combine the digital nomadism. So it's like, it's yeah. So there's a lot of lessons that kind of cross pollinate into the in, into the fire community, and I'm trying to teach people how this kind of works because it like it makes all these fairly intractable like like seemingly intractable problems just disappear. Wow, really, really, really good points. And I actually accidentally fell into the fire movement, you know, after I've been kind of doing you know, doing it for a while, just as a nomad, just as you had mentioned, a yeah. lot of things that, you know, we do as digital nomads kind of just perfectly align. And an another thing, uh, you know, about uh, the cost of living is in some places like Chiang Mai, the cost of living doesn't go up that quickly. I, I remember when I first started living here seven years ago, you know, the cost of a pad thai was 
two dollars. Now it's still two dollars. Yeah. The, the cost of my apartment, my cheapest, nicest, you know, apartment, you know, six, seven years ago was two hundred dollars a month, and then now I'm living in a place that's two hundred fifty dollars a month, and. Yeah. You know, maybe percentage-wise, it has gone up, but because the cost was so low in the first place, even right. if it raised by two percent a year or ten percent a year, the the total cost is still so low. Versus, if your apartment in San Francisco or Toronto raises by you know like ten, you know twenty five percent, it that might be the difference between two thousand dollars a month and you know almost three thousand dollars a month and, and it's yeah. a big difference yeah yeah exactly we, we were describing um like during our first year of traveling in thailand and we were describing like the cost of everything back to a friend of ours who had traveled here like 20 years ago and then he was just kind of like huh it hasn't changed at all and i was like really <laughs> it, it's yeah it's it's because inflation is actually caused by like whatever the central bank uh, of that particular country like it, it's caused by like how much money they print and how much money they take out of circulation and how they like what they decide to do with like issuing debt and all this and all this like, complicated stuff but basically america their policy is to keep inflation within one to three percent that's what their job of their central bank is to do but that doesn't mean that thailand central bank uh like their government may decide to do something completely different and as a result you get like a zero inflation uh game here and if you're in japan it's even reverse right i mean like the longer you live in japan the more your money can actually buy so it's actually it's actually in the opposite direction so it's like yeah it's it's but people in the u.s they they tend to and this is not just an american thing everyone seems to think that wherever they live that's where the rules are for everywhere and that's not at all true right i i was um i tell the story of like you know how we were in uh, we were in canada and then we decided to go down to mexico uh, we went to cancun at one point and then everyone in Canada was kind of saying, oh, Mexico's dangerous. It's, it's, it's so dangerous. How can you go there? You're going to get like killed. And then we're like, yeah, yeah, fine, whatever. We went to Cancun and then we met up with our Airbnb host. His name was uh, Diego and he is a, um, a scuba diving instructor. And then we were telling him that, uh, oh, scuba diving. We did our scuba diving in Koh Tao uh, in Thailand. And it's really cool there because, you know, in Thailand, there's these like there are these people that are like, you know, uh, Dive masters that just go there, hop around in different dive, uh, dive shops, and then like that's how they make their money. And then Diego kind of went, "Ooh, Thailand! I heard that's dangerous, right?" So it's like <laughs> the Mexican guy is now saying, "Ooh, Thailand! That's unsafe." And I was like, "Okay, everybody thinks that their city is the only place that they could possibly live, and everyone else is like dragons be here. Like everyone's like that." Yeah, definitely. And, and I remember being in like South Africa. And talking to my girlfriend this times, like her her two cousins about going to Thailand and how amazing it is, and they should come visit. And they both really, you know, their eyes lit up, saying like, "Oh, that sounds so great! I want to do it." And then they said, "But, but isn't it dangerous? <laughs> isn't South Africa like one of one of the yeah. highest like, crime rates in the world or something?" Yeah, and we we looked at them and we're like, "You live in Johannesburg, like this is the, <laughs> the highest murder rate in the world." Yeah. Yet they were scared to yeah. go to Thailand, which especially in Chiang Mai. Is probably one of the safest places in the world. I, I I would venture to say it's safer than being in Toronto. Oh yeah, oh, I, I looked up the crime stats. It is it is per, per capita is definitely lower. Um, I think people should just stop reading the news. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah, that's not how anything works. It's just it's all scaremongering. Yeah, they saw yeah. like the Bangkok protests from like ten years ago, yeah. and they're like, oh, they're riding there all the time now. And I was like, no, yeah. that was a decade ago. Okay? I also think that people don't have a realistic view of the place because they. Um, yeah, they're thinking like many, many decades ago. Because one of my friends was like, oh, don't you have to ride a scooter everywhere? I don't know how to ride a scooter. I'm like, you've never heard of Grab? Like, look it up, right? right. So, 
Yeah. So yeah. It's, they're just kind of thinking about that place from how the news portrays it, not not what it's actually like. What what the, the reality is that being a digital nomad and traveling like this has never been easier. Like I'm constantly amazed by how um, like how interconnected all of our all of our stuff is. Like you land that, like you ever watch there's this movie called A Map for Saturday and it was take it was done in the early 2000s and it was a guy who went and traveled in Chiang Mai uh, or not Chiang Mai but like around Thailand uh, and uh, it, he made a documentary about it right and he's like you know trying to find net cafes and trying to look up like places in his in, in his lonely planet guide and translating this and trying to read Thai Thai signs and like using like calling cards and using like traveler's checks. Like I was like, I don't have to do any of that anymore. I just land in a place, my phone tells me where to go. And then I check into my Airbnb and then I go eat some Pad Thai. And I, you know, it's like, it's so easy now because all of the stuff is like uh, the technology that we have here that makes traveling easy. Like your phone does everything now. Like you can, you can call a car, you can find a place, you can translate everything. I mean, like it's never been easier to be a traveler. Why would you stay in one place now? Yeah, definitely. And now there's, you know, blog posts about each city and, you know, like, because a lot of people haven't heard of Grab if they haven't been to Asia. But then once you read someone's blog post that, you know, Grab is like the Uber of Asia, or literally yeah. is, because they, they, I think they bought Uber uh, in, in Asia, it, then you realize, you know, it, the things that we don't know that are preventing us from going somewhere are are at the touch of our fingertips. And it, it really is so much easier now that there's really no excuses for anyone not to do these things. Yeah, I think we I think we met because we like found an, a, a video that you that you made talking about smoky season or something like that yeah, in Chiang Mai, yeah. right? It was just kind of like, oh, hey, now there's somebody that we know on the ground that can tell us when the good time is, is to, to 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 come or not. So I was like, yeah, it's because it's also because of people like you that make traveling much more accessible. I mean, I wouldn't have known about that if it wasn't for you. <laughs> yeah, and and another kind of point that that you had made earlier about inflation and, and cost of living going up is I think a big thing that expats can learn from the digital nomad community is instead of just retiring in one place and being locked in and then just complaining in Facebook groups or on Reddit on how, you know, things are more expensive and how miserable, you know, their lives are now, just move. Because there's always going to yeah. be a new kind of up-and-coming place that is undervalued but, you know, a cool new hip place to go to. And in five or ten years – Maybe Chiang Mai will be too expensive, but then you know some place in Cambodia or in Laos, when the Philippines is going to become the next you know great place that just happens to have you know great infrastructure, good Wi-Fi, you know have low cost of living, but isn't as popular yet. Yeah, it's the one city fallacy because whenever it kind of goes, oh, I couldn't live there. I need the weather to be good and I need it to be good infrastructure. I need to be close to my family. I need to, da, 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 and, they, and they list out all the conditions that they have. And then they inevitably arrive back in well, the only city that fills all these is the city I'm in right now, but it's really expensive, right? It's a way to talk yourself out of doing anything. But the, but it's I'm the just easiest how, thing to do is, but I'm like, no, no, you're doing that one city thing right now. You don't have to live in one city. You're like you could split up your bullet points for like what you need into like three or four different cities. And then just cycle around those things. You could be in Portugal in the spring and then spend uh, the winter in Asia and then spend, you know, the spring in Mexico and then or South America. And then you can do that and you can have everything that you want at all points, points of time of the year. And it can also be cheap. And then it kind of went, oh, I never thought of it that way. Like they just it just never occurred to them that they could live in more than one city over the year. Yeah, that's actually a good point because I'm almost doing that accidentally where – you know, yeah. instead, of, I you know, originally I wanted to live in a in, near a beach that had good surfing, but also good scuba diving, but then also had you know good city life, 
as well as mountains, as well as, you know, European food, but also good Thai food. It just, <laughs> it just wasn't possible. But now that yeah. I just, I spend, you know, two or three months in Chiang Mai and get all of my Thai food and the nomad community stuff in, I'll go to Sri Lanka next where I spend two months just surfing and living cheaply by the beach and then Ooh. go to Europe for the summer. It really just hits all the boxes and it doesn't actually cost us that much more or anything because, you know, flights are so cheap nowadays too and so easy that yeah. – I end up saving money by living in multiple, you know, countries and never having to deal with long-term visas because I'm always there just for three months or so on a tourist visa. It, yep. it really, there's all these hacks and, and that's a really good yeah, point you, you made. Yeah, you figured it out, man. Congratulations. So like, what is your, what does your year look like? So um, you said uh, in a typical year, you go like Chiang Mai and then Sri Lanka and then like, where else do you go? Yeah, so for the last couple of years, I've been searching the globe for the next Chiang Mai. <laughs> but in, yeah. while doing that, I realized there is no other Chiang Mai, but right. there are places that have other amazing qualities. And for example, I I discovered Tbilisi, Georgia last year. You know, it's a place I never heard of, and a lot of people haven't heard of. But once I was there, I realized, wow, this country is amazing. It and it's so cheap, you know, and the food is amazing. It's culturally, it's right in the center of Eastern Europe, you know, right below Russia, right above, you know, the Middle East and East of Asia. And, you know, food-wise, culture-wise, it's kind of blended all of it all. It's super safe, but it's still modern. The infrastructure is great. And that's why we're bringing the Nomad Summit there this year because I want to just bring more nomads there and say, like, look, this is a new place that gives one-year visas for everyone. So you don't have to worry about that. Wow, that's cool. We might have to come. Uh, we might have to come follow you around, man. Like, those are some really good ideas. I hadn't heard of. I hadn't heard much of Georgia until you uh, until you mentioned at the summit either. How did yeah. you hear about it? I was so I never would have heard about it if I wasn't in Ukraine. <laughs> and okay. the the most popular you know, non Ukrainian food there is Georgian food, and I'd never seen it or heard of it. But everyone just loved Georgian food, so I tried it out a few times. And it's a mix. It's literally a mix between, you know, kind of the the Western, uh, you know, steak and potatoes, but also a lot of Asian food. Like they have their most famous dish is called kinkali, and it looks like a giant Chinese xiaolongbao. <laughs> and it, I like, I like it, everything that you just yeah. said. <laughs> and it's like a, it's like, a, like literally, it's like as like as big as an orange, but it's you know a soup dumpling, <laughs> and. They're so cheap and they're so delicious. I mean, they're literally, I think, like 30 cents each and they're giant. So you can get full. I mean, you can go to a restaurant and order, you know, five kinkalis for $1.50 and be full. All right. Sold. All right, we're, we're, putting, we're putting Georgia on, on our itinerary. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to meet up with you all over the world now because like, you're like, okay, this guy knows what's up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's been fun. And, and, you know, it really is this podcast, the Nomad Summit, my blog is really just trying to get other people to join, join along. And I'm so happy to connect with people like you guys who bring in new ideas as well. So on, on that, on that point, I want to ask, what are some things that you think the digital nomad community can learn from the fire community? Oh, the investment side. I mean, like it's not enough to just earn money. You have to understand. You have to have a strategy for what to do about it. Because if you if you if you just earn it, and, it's, and I and I see, I see this unfortunately a lot with the digital nomads I end up meeting up. There's no strategy. They just earn it, put into a savings account, and then they spend it on like you know drones. And um, but it's like the digital nomad. Uh, it's like no 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 no. You can't do that because because you're relying on active uh, income. And the more you rely on active income, the more you're vulnerable to unexpected shocks to whatever. I mean, like everyone's doing the Amazon FBA now. It seems like uh, it seems like everyone's doing the Amazon FBA now. 
But one day that party might end for whatever reason, you know, like Amazon changes some algorithm or, you know, their, their program, they, they, they shut the program down and then what, right? So it's like the name of the game is turning active income into passive income because when you become because when you can do that you don't a you end your wealth increases dramatically because you don't need to uh, spend as much money like your savings rate goes up and up and up and up like if you're retired like you and I are um, every dollar that you earn out with from a side hustle you can save that like we're basically hitting a 100% savings rate and as a result when we retired we had a million dollars now that we've been traveling and blogging for and writing this book for like four years, it's now up to 1.5, right? It's like um, we were actually making money in retirement because every bit of side hustle income that we make, we get to keep it all and it just increases our net worth and it just makes the passive income grow even more. Like we're now, that's the real name of the game here, turning active income into passive income and um, and, and doing it in a way that's location independent because you guys are going to be digital nomads and some people go off and like, oh, they're going to, they, they take the money and they buy it, you know, rental housing. Well, guess what? If you do that, it's going to become much more difficult for you to continue traveling. So learning how to turn, learning how to take that money, learning how to invest it is really, really important. It's even more important for you digital nomad types because your income is generally much more unstable than like a salaried employee, right? You can earn a lot of money, but it's a lot. It, it, it generally fluctuates a lot month per month. So if you don't do that, you're always going to be at the whims of, of, of mercy and, and the whims and the mercy of like, you know, market forces or Amazon or, or whoever. But if you can do if, if you can uh, build that passive portfolio, then there is going to be a point in which you kind of like, hey, you know what? I don't need you anymore. I'm just doing this for me. I don't need to do I don't need to work for money. I'm doing it for uh, because it makes me happy. I love that. It's really, really good advice. And I think that's something else that the digital nomad community can definitely benefit from is just learning about investing. And and, yeah. and that I actually accidentally started the Invest Like a Boss podcast because some of the kind of nomads who have been doing it longer and, and just have sold businesses, they, you know, just like really started asking like, what should we do with this money? And there's a lot of, it's actually kind of surprising. There's a lot of really successful nomads in Chiang Mai that still live there just because they love it so much, even though they sold a business for a million dollars or more, or they're making, you know, 30, 40, 50 grand a month in profit from their online business. And they're just putting that money in a savings account. Cause as you said, they have no idea what to do with it. You know, everything that they read in the, in the news headlines is that, you know, stocks are overpriced, real estate's overpriced, and they're just, they end up, like a lot of them literally just end up spending that money. And to me, it's insane to be able to spend 20 grand a month, you know, anywhere, but especially in Thailand. But I've... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, I, I guess you can always That's find a lot a of pad ties. That's a lot, a lot of pad ties. <laughs> a lot of pad ties. But well, yeah. actually, the, the funny thing is, uh, even my co-host for Best Like a Boss, Sam Marks, he's spending, I think, something like five or $7,000 a month in Chiang Mai. And he owns his condo. And I was like, how do you do that? Like, I, I wouldn't even be able to spend that if I wanted to. And a lot yeah, of that it, would be a challenge. Yeah. And I broke it down. Like, we, we, I like dug in and I was like, what the hell are you spending money on? And a lot of it is living kind of a Western, West, West European or American lifestyle while living in Chiang Mai. So $1,000 a month on wine, $1,000 a month on eating, you know, Western food like steaks and going out. <laughs> and that's a perfect example of someone who can just say, you know what, let me live in Chiang Mai for a few months of the year, enjoy the Thai stuff, Thai food. And then let me live in Europe for a couple of months of the year and enjoy wine and cheese. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How has your, because uh, you hit FI um, not too long ago, how has how have you found that experience? Like, what, 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 would, what does it feel like before FI and then after FI for you personally? So I, I think I, I hit, and my, my number always changes. So I technically hit uh, FI maybe two or three years ago, and I was in Bali, and I was having, I was dealing with a lot of BS. Like, I had just sold my business, and I was trying to, and so I had like a nice windfall of another 60 grand come in. And then, so I had, I think at the time, maybe like four or $500,000. So I was like, okay, you know what? This is like enough for me to do a withdrawal rate of, you know, 20, you know, like oh, a little bit less than $2,000 a month. And I was like, okay, I, I can, I can retire now. Why am I still like dealing with starting another business? I can just chill. And I ended up chilling for maybe six months or so. And I, and I was really burnt out because I think for, you know, six years prior to that, I lived, ate, and slept, you know, entrepreneurship. So all my friends on my Facebook were talking about business, you know, any like everywhere we went, we're talking about online business and growing it. And I wanted to shut down for just for six months. And I couldn't because everyone I knew was an entrepreneur or nomad. And it was like a kind of a weird transition thinking, oh, my God, I can't even enjoy retirement because everyone just wants to talk about work. And I think I ended up kind of escaping to, I, I was like, you know what, let me just go to another country where I don't know anyone, where they don't speak English. <laughs> so I went to Ukraine for a few months just to kind of <laughs> reset everything and be a traveler again. And when I got back, I realized, you know what, I do want to actually, I actually enjoy entrepreneurship and, and, and building businesses, but I don't want to do it on the terms where I need to. I want to do things that I enjoy doing. Right. And that's when I started focusing a lot on the Nomad Summit and the, the two podcasts, because these are things I just really love doing. And also I realized that my kind of lean fi number, the the you know, the fifteen hundred dollars a month, even though that was enough for me to live off of myself, I wanted to be able to give my parents money because they were getting older and I knew they wanted to retire. Mm, so yeah. I started kind of working again and just earning more money and I started giving my mom a thousand bucks a month and I started paying their property taxes Christmas gift every year. And all of a sudden, I realized I can't, you know, I, I have to start working again, because, you know, if I want to support them as well. And that made me raise my my fine number to uh, $750,000. But having that goal, I think, forced me to continue living cheaply and then build my businesses and earn more money. But it was actually a lot, like, it was a, so much easier and faster to go from a net worth of 400 grand to 750 grand than to even go from 1000 to 30,000, which was my first goal. Yeah. 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 That's it. Yeah. It's cause like, like the money starts making money on its own. Right. I mean, like it's, there's this, you know, they're just saying that like, you know, millionaires have like, Oh, the first million is the hardest, which is a very douchey saying, but it's also kind of sort of true because like going from zero to one is really, really hard, but going from one to two is like sometimes, you just kind of like you just wake up and it just happens because you like the money's making money on its own. You're doing your side hustle stuff. Uh, it, it just you, you put those uh, two piles of money together and it's like, oh wow, we, you know, like this year we cleared like a quarter million dollars and we didn't really work that hard. Uh, so it's like, wow, this is really how the this is really how wealth gets built. This is there's this saying that um, I think it was like Robert Kiyosaki, like poor people buy stuff, middle class people buy houses, rich people buy investments because they understand that having money is not wealth. Wealth generates and perpetuates on its own until it starts working even harder than you can. And then it just goes up and up and up faster than you can ever spend it. That's how rich people think. And that's how rich people get rich. So, yeah, you figured it out. Good job. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. And and I'm, I'm curious. Here's a question for Christy. 
is I'm assuming now you don't travel with a, a big purse collection anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, do you yeah. like? Do you feel more wealthy now, not owning all these fancy purses, or you know, oh, ha- having you know what? Like what? what like what was the brands you had? Probably like Louis Vuitton or Prada. Uh, I think originally it, it wasn't even like that crazy. I think it was like stepping up. I started out with coach and then I started moving to more expensive brands. Uh, but I think back then it really was like, I think it's the, it, this is what I like to call the immigrant rebound, uh, effect. Cause when I first came to Canada, it was like, I was amazed by everything because I lived in poverty. So it was like, Oh my God, there's hot water and you don't have to go boil water when you take a shower. And what are these toilet things? And that's amazing. And Oh my God, all their bananas are even bigger than the ones I've seen in my life. Uh, a can of Coke was the most amazing mind blowing thing ever. Um, but then later on, once you start working, you're like, Oh, uh, I should probably buy things because now I can afford it. And I need that to kind of show myself that I've made it. Like I need to buy it because I deserve it because I've made it. And then that's the point when you start to realize that every single purchase you make, um, it's like a dopamine hit to your brain. And that's why you want more because it's an easy like, oh, I just spend this money and then I'll get happiness. Uh, but then what I realize it's it's like in our book, when we talk about it, it's almost like getting a cocaine hit where it's it just levels off after a while. Like that dopamine hit decreases over time because you're not as excited for the next purchase. And then you need to buy more in order to be happy and then more and more and more. And that's when I realized that it doesn't matter how many purses I buy, uh, that feeling is just going to dissipate. It's it's the hedonic treadmill. After a while, I'm not going to feel anything. And then I'll just have to keep spending money in order to get the hit. So eventually, um, like I said, it, it took, it was a very long process going from the hoarding mindset and like, needing to prove myself into this minimalist mindset. But now I'm definitely happier than ever. Like when I had those purses, I was constantly worried that I was going to get them scratched. It was going to get dirty. I would scream at Bryce whenever he accidentally sat on one of them. Uh, (laughs) They were basically my children. Like I I wanted to name them. That's how bad it was. But at this point, it was just I don't have to I don't have to think about any of that. I just have a week of clothing. I have my laptop to work on my passion projects and uh, I have friends to hang out with. It's all about the experiences and I do not miss any of those purses at all. I, I have, okay, I have to admit, I have one nice purse that I carry with me, but that's it. Like, I don't need to accumulate anymore because when you reach that level of happiness and satisfaction in your life, uh, it, it, you know that when you accumulate stuff and you spend money, it really is just some sort of insecurity and some sort of void that you're trying to fill. And I no longer have that, that void anymore. How many did you have at what point? Was it like five? I don't remember. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> lost count. Yeah, we, we ended up selling all of them except one. Wow. And I'm sure it's probably similar with shoes as well. How many pairs of shoes are you guys traveling with now? And how many did you have at your high point? <laughs> yeah. At one point, our landlord came because he was living downstairs. And then he came out and saw like all my 10, 10 or 15 pairs of shoes. And he's like, are you starting a shoe store? Like what, what is going on here? Uh, and now we travel the world with just two pairs of shoes each, just our running shoes and our sandals. And we don't need any more than that. Wow. That's, that's really amazing. And it, it's it's funny that we thought we needed that many shoes. I mean, because I was actually – I had the same issue. I, I didn't ever own purses, but I probably owned at a high point, you know, 25 pairs of shoes just because I wow. thought – Yeah. I, I thought this is what you needed. I, I had so much clothes and I remember I would buy – like I, w- I would go and buy something and, you know, I would go to like Burberry and buy a dress shirt that I thought, you know, was like the coolest thing in the world because it had – you know, like it was either the, the Burberry plaid or it was like white collar with blue and then uh, white stripes that actually said Burberry when you looked closely. And <laughs> I would, you know, I would wear it out and 
expect everyone to notice it or give a compliment. And when they didn't, then I would, you know, you know, just be like, oh, you know, they have no class. They, they, they don't recognize this brand. And now I'm thinking back. I'm like, now I, I can't believe how douchey I was. But I think that that comes from insecurity of thinking, you know, if I have this luxury thing that other people don't, either they're going to be jealous and compliment it, or I can look down on them somehow because I'm better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? The funny thing is, all those people you're trying to press, none of them—they're all trying to do the same thing, and none of them have any money. Yeah, and none of them are happy. None of them are happy. So it's like, why am I trying to make these people happy that I don't even care about? They're not happy either. Everybody just keeps looking at somebody else and then comparing themselves to that person. Like I have a friend who was, um, she was making a lot of money, like almost 200 grand a year. But she was looking at another person who was making 500,000 a year and going like, oh no, I need to be at their level. Or I like, I feel poor even though I make 200,000. Then I'm like, I asked her, so if you get to the 500,000, are you going to be satisfied? And then she really thought really hard about it. And she's like, you know what? I would probably look at somebody else making a million and be like, I'm not making a million. So where does it end? It never ends, right? Um, and I think they did research before. If you live in a neighborhood that makes $25,000 a year and you make $50,000, you're going to be much happier than if you live in a neighborhood making $100,000 a year, but everyone else is making $500,000. So it, it's, just half, it's just relative. Like everybody's trying to compete with everyone else. And that that's just a recipe for disaster. That's that's a recipe for unhappiness because it doesn't matter how much, how many purses you buy, how many shoes you buy, you will never be happy. So, what is the recipe for happiness? Well, uh, I mean, like the, what she said is like a kind of like an externally validated way of of doing happiness, which is you know it doesn't really work out that well because again, you, there's always that other treadmill. But um, to to be completely honest, the fire thing. It defines an, what the the central genius of the entire fire movement is. It defines an enough point. It defines okay when here when you have X amount of dollars, you never need to worry about money ever again. And that's not that's a critical component of happiness. You still there's still you know you don't become automatically like you know happy all the time uh, after you become fi. But it's a really 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 important step because that's the point where you're no longer scared of what if I run out of money. Right. And then uh, and then you can go off and figure out what is the, the, the key to happiness, because for, it's, diff it's different for everyone. And for us, it, it turned out to be travel, writing, doing things, doing cool things with people that you uh, enjoy hanging out with and work, working on cool projects like this blog. And it sounded like for you, you had a little bit of that, too, where you, you know, we are all used to deciding how to fill our day and what to do based on, you know, who's paying me, like based on money kind of stuff. Right it's actually kind of weird to kind of say, okay, now what is it that I want to do? What makes me happy? And you don't actually have the space to figure out what makes you happy, like internally, until you figure out, until you figured out the money part and you figure out the money part when you get to fire. So uh, fire is actually a, a pretty critical, you know, step on uh, to happiness. It's not the entire solution, but it's like really, it, it's a really important step. I think it defines the point of enough. So once you have enough, you're buying back your time and your health. So our health has increased exponentially since we left. We have all this time in the world to do what we want to do. Like you said, Johnny, you, you do what you want to do rather than do something that you have to do it. You're choosing to, to spend your time however you want you want to. So I, I would define happiness is um, realizing the point where you have enough, which is defined by this formula uh, in the FIRE community. Uh, and then once you reach that point, you can do whatever it is that you want with your time and you get your health back because you don't have to worry. You don't have to stress out about money ever again. 
I love it. I, I think that's fantastic. And, and I really think that a lot of people listening to this episode are going to get so much value out of it, whether you are in the digital nomad community or the fire community, or you're just looking into dipping your toes into either. I think that the tips in here really are going to create a, like a, a fuller life. I, I really believe that merging these two communities is going to make everyone's life better, whether you're living back home in an expensive city now and you realize, hey, this is an option to be able to hit fire so much faster. Or if you're already traveling and you realize, hey, this fire thing could create you know, a, a future and a life where I don't have to stress and worry about money anymore. Right? Thank you so much for, for being on the show. I, I really appreciate it. No, this is awesome. This is a lot of fun. And let's, yeah, let's do this some more. <laughs> this is yeah, a lot of fun. Thanks so much yeah. for having us. And thank you so much for putting together the Nomad Summit. We, uh, we've we actually made a lot of really good connections with friends afterwards. And we met up with them uh, with several meetups. And uh, we're probably going to see them all over the world now. So yeah, thank whole, you for that. Yeah, it's a whole new community that we're now like getting introduced to. So yeah, you did that. Thank you for Thank you for everything that you did there. Well, you're very welcome. And for everyone listening back home, if you want to join the community, come check out the next Nomad Summit. It's going to be in Tbilisi, Georgia, the weekend of May 23rd, 2020. Go to nomadsummit.com, sign up for the email list there. And also, when you sign up for the email list, you'll get notified when all the talks go live and for free, including my talk on fire. If you guys want to read Christy and Bryce's book, we'll have a link to it in the show notes, but it's called Quit Like a Millionaire, No Gimmicks, Luck, or Trust Fund Required. And if they want to reach out to you guys or check out your blog, how can they find you? Uh, so just go to our blog, www.millennial-revolution.com and just click the contact us link. Awesome. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks again for coming and see all of you guys next week. Hey bosses, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Bryce and Christy. It's great having them on. I think it's a really, really good topic. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this with your friends. Take a screenshot, send them to social media, email it to your friends because I think a lot of people are going to benefit from it. And if you want to help with this podcast grow, please take the time to leave a review on iTunes because it helps so much. I also want to thank our sponsor this week, Global Pass. Check them out at coworker.com slash pass. And this week, I would like to... Uh, give a shout out to our review of the week. Uh, it says, Love Johnny FD, five stars. Could you ask for a better guide to entrepreneurship, travel, investing, and living outside of the normal script society gives you? I appreciate Johnny for sharing what he's learned, being so genuine and open along the way, and bringing so many others with interesting stories as well. Be sure to check out his other podcast, Invest in Black and Box, too. Thanks again, my three stars guy, and thank you all for taking the time to leave reviews on the iTunes store. I know it's a bit clunky, but it helps so much. Let's get some reviews in for 2020. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.